welcome to the Monarch Human Performance Podcast. I'm your host, John Sillis. On this week's episode, we are joined by John Paul Nevin. John Paul is a senior lecturer in strength and conditioning at Buckinghamshire New University. He has over 15 years experience in the fields of military physical training, exercise rehabilitation, performance sport, and academia. He previously served in the Royal Army Physical Training Corps as an exercise rehabilitation instructor before taking up the role of lead strength and conditioning coach at the service charity Help for Heroes. He moved into academia in 2017 and is the course leader for the Bachelor's in Strength and Conditioning program at Buckinghamshire New University. He's an accredited strength and conditioning coach with the UK Strength and Conditioning Association and a certified strength and conditioning specialist with the National Strength and Conditioning Association. He has over eight peer-reviewed publications and is currently working towards his PhD investigating the optimization of hand cycling performance. His other research interests include velocity-based training, auto-regulation of resistance training, and enhancing the physical preparedness of the modern soldier for the demands of ground-close combat. Hello, John Paul, and welcome to the podcast, mate. Hi, John. How's it going? You well? I'm all good, bud. I'm all good. Uh, very excited to have you on here today, mate, and pick your brain a little bit. Uh, I just know you've had a very diverse career, so I really want to dive in and find out a bit about that. I mean, me and you met, was it 2013, 2014? We originally met on the, the Masters at St. Mary's and got to know you a little bit back then. Um, but I know there'll be some people listening who won't be familiar with you and your work. So could you just tell us a little bit about yourself? Yeah, so, uh, so my name is John Paul Nevin. I'm uh, currently the senior lecturer in strength conditioning at Buckinghamshire New University. Uh, prior to coming into academia, uh, I served in the military for well, the army for just shy of 15 years, uh, eight of which were spent in the Corps of Royal Engineers and the uh, final seven were spent in the Royal Army Physical Training Corps, where I trained and served as an exercise rehabilitation instructor. Uh, I left the army in 2012 uh, and went to work for the service charity Help for Heroes, where I was their lead strength conditioning coach uh, and I delivered performance support to wounded, injured and sick uh, veterans uh, and serving personnel who were hoping to progress onto Paralympic performance sport pathways uh, and I ended up providing performance support uh, to those guys and girls for, well, well, I'm still doing so now in some way, shape or form for the past uh, eight years. And obviously moving into academia now, it's a, it's a bit of a shift, a bit of a pivot shift. So obviously coming from the military, having joined at a young age, hadn't had a, a, a good career uh, and obviously then left, moved to service charity, which very much felt like I was still in the military, to be perfectly honest with you. And then finally shifting into academia. Yeah, fair. I mean, very, very diverse uh, background there, mate. And excited to get into it in a little bit. You mentioned there, like when you first started your career in the army, you were with the engineers for eight years, and then you made the move over to the physical training corps. What uh, initially prompted the move from the engineers into the physical training corps? Well, it's quite interesting. So I joined the army at 15 and nine months as an apprentice. So September 97, uh, when I joined. And I'd always wanted to join the army. Obviously, you're, you're filled with joke. You appreciate that the army is probably held in higher esteem in Scotland than it is down in England. But, and for me, it was just, that was just the way I always wanted to go. Now, I always remember I wanted to join the Royal Scots and I went to the careers office and the careers office guy that like, you're too young, you've got to be 18 or 17, 18 at least uh, to join the infantry at that point. And he said, well, what does your dad do? And I said, oh, my dad's a painter and decorator. I said, oh, well, why don't you join the, the Royal Engineers and you could be a painter and decorator with your dad? And obviously being young and naive, I said, oh yeah, brilliant idea. So I joined the army, uh, 
obviously apprentice training wing at Gibraltar Barracks in Camberway for nine months. They had done my combat engineer training, which was three months. And then got posted to my first unit, which was 3-9 Engineer Regiment up in Waterbeach near Cambridge uh, in what, back end of 98. And obviously tipping into a, a unit at well, just shy of 17 at that point was talk about jumping in at the deep end. But I was really lucky that I went to a squadron, 3-4 uh, field squadron air support, where we had a really good group of guys. And I was obviously taken under the wing uh, and developed uh, as both a soldier as a sapper. But then... It just so happens that a number of guys who were in my troop, one of them was the PTI for the squadron, physical training instructor of the squadron. And he was a brilliant role model. And uh, he sort of inspired me to want to be a PTI myself. And when I think back to school, my best subjects at school were uh, physical uh, P, physical education and biology. Mm -hmm. And I can always remember about in the mid 90s, a... I'm a, I'm a Hibs fan from Edinburgh originally, and, but I remember reading an article about the St. Johnson manager at the time, a guy called Paul Sturrock, and he just recovered from a heart attack. And he'd had an epiphany that there was a better way to train footballers and basically went away and he got a, a German coach at the time to come over and help optimise the St. Johnson team at that time. And I always remember that and I always found it fascinating. And obviously the fact, I always have that memory and then obviously the fact that those are my, the subject areas which I had such an interest in at school. But then, obviously, fast forward to Met 3.9, obviously, I've got these role models who are PTIs, and well, I've got an interest in this area, and I want to be a PTI. So I went away and done the, uh, it wasn't the all-arms, it was a Class 3 physical training instructor course at Aldershot in 2000, 2000 yeah, just to turn into 2000 and, and trained as a PTI. Mm -hmm. And then what that meant is when I came back to the unit, I then helped deliver PT for the squadron uh, working under a Royal Army Physical Training Corps instructor who sort of managed the gym within the unit. And I'd done that for a number of years. Uh, and when I came back from a tour at the Falklands, I then got a, a posting, got posted to Germany. It was called a JHQ, so Joint Headquarters Rheindallen. And I was working directly then for another uh, individual in the PT Corps. And, but I was also then delivering PT for some of the, real, some of the highest ranks in the British Army. And, I was beginning to see things in a very different light, uh, but then obviously to appreciate the bigger strategic picture and how things operate and, and what's important in terms of career development and so on. And the, my core guy at the time, he was really keen and he supported me then to go and do a civilian diploma in personal training, a company called Premier at the time. So the army actually funded me to go and do this course because they seen it as just continued career development. And that really sort of what the fuse. And then from there, I decided, yeah, I want to transfer to the PT Corps. Uh, I got posted to 2A Engineer Regiment up in Hamill uh, and then uh, applied to transfer to the PT Corps. However, the PT Corps, you don't get recruited uh, direct from Civilian Street. You obviously have to already be serving in the Army and you have to go through a selection process. So I went through a selection process, done well there. Uh, I was selected. And then for me, that was it. I was off, transferred to the RAPTC. Uh, done my nine months probationer training at the Royal Army School, Army School of Physical Training in Aldershot, uh, and then was selected straight off the back of that to train as an exercise rehabilitation instructor, which is another six months uh, of in-house training at the Joint Service School of Exercise Rehabilitation Instructors, at that point at the Defence Medical Rehabilitation Centre, Headley Court. So yeah, that was sort of my path uh, from the engineers into the RAPTC, but as you could probably gather, that path started before I even joined the army, but I yeah. just didn't realize it at the time. 
So obviously you, you touched upon there, uh, you went down the, the rehab instructor route, uh, like stream within the RAPC. Because um, there's, there's two, isn't there? There's a, the rehab instructor and there's more of the, the PTI side of things as well, isn't it? The two streams within the, the, the core. There's actually three streams uh, within the PT branches, and this applies to both the Royal Marine Physical Training Corps, the RAF PT wing, and the Royal Navy Royal Marine PT branches. And that you have a uh, mainstream uh, gym instructor or a uh, gym bunny, as we like to call them. Uh, you have the exercise rehabilitation instructor who specialises in exercise rehabilitation, and we also have the adventurous training instructor who okay. specialises in adventurous training and obviously learning all the various skills that have to go with that. But what they tend to do is cross-pollinate now. So you might do a couple of years as an ERI or a couple of tours as an ERI, but then you might get posted to a mainstream unit where you do physical training. And then you may find as your career progresses, you may then get posted to an adventurous training post where you do over AT. And the idea being is that you have this cross-pollination of skills and ideas and knowledge, and it just maintains this quite unique skill set within the core. Although saying that, some people do specialise. So some people may decide that they want to go down the ERI pathway their entire career. However, that's brilliant and they can develop. However, it may sort of restrict their promotion chances moving forward. Mm -hmm. Okay, that's interesting. And I mean, for you going down the rehab instructor route and then being a Headley Court, uh, can you tell us just a little bit like what your role exactly was as a rehab instructor while you were at Headley Court and like how you integrated in within that, uh, that uh, unit there? Yeah, so the, the, the exercise rehab instructor, uh, well, it's previously known as an RI, so it used to be a remedial instructor, and before that, it was remedial gymnast. And the remedial gymnasts were actually born as a result of uh, experiences in the Second World War, whereby the, the military identified that exercise therapy was going to be key to rehabilitating uh, wounded, injured, and sick service personnel. And the remedial gymnast uh, was born from that. And the remedial gymnast was a profession within the United Kingdom up until the early 1980s when it was swallowed up by the Royal Church Society of Physiotherapists. Uh, indeed, you find that some of the older physiotherapists currently practicing were RGs in the Army, the RAF, or the, uh, the Navy at one point or another. However, the Army, or the military, sorry, Defence Rehab noticed, realised quickly that physiotherapists aren't going to be able to cover all of this. They're not going to be able to do hands-on physiotherapy and exercise rehab. Therefore, they decided to maintain the concept of remedial gymnast, but just rename them the remedial instructor. And the role of the remedial instructor, exercise rehabilitation instructor, is exactly what it says in the tin, to deliver exercise rehabilitation as part of an interdisciplinary team. So they work in conjunction with orthopedics, uh, consultant, physiotherapists, occupational therapists and the like to help deliver the holistic rehabilitation package uh, to injured service personnel. Now, I would say up until quite recently, the ERI qualification was unique. There wasn't really a comparable equivalent within uh, civilian street at all. However, at the moment, you obviously have degrees in sports rehabilitation and sports therapy. They're becoming more prevalent and they're probably they're quite similar to what the ERI does. However, personally, and again, I focus on my own development, I would say the role of the ERI is more, more that of the strength conditioning practitioner. However, the difference being is that the ERI has a much greater understanding of clinical musculoskeletal conditions and is able to work with an individual from the lowest level of function 
all the way through that continuum back to full function. And they have an understanding of the contraindications of various conditions. And then they also understand the healing timelines and tissue healing timelines of those respective injuries. But more importantly, how to apply exercise rehabilitation at the right time in the right context by which to drive positive adaptation to take someone back to where they need to be. Mm -hmm. uh, and again, I'd still say that the, the role of the RI, when you look at it, there isn't really a direct comparable, uh, comparable in civilian street. For the RI cannot do hands-on, that's that within defence rehab, hands-on manipulation, massage, and that sort of um, intervention is physiotherapy-based. Whereas within civilian street, the sports rehabilitator or the sports therapist might be expected to do that sort of work. And they'll have a bit of an understanding about exercise rehab. But I would argue strongly from my own experiences and observations that the ERI, their ability to deliver and prescribe exercise rehabilitation as part of that interdisciplinary team is second to none. So that sort of gives you an overview as to, to the role of the, the ERI. How we deliver that, we do it in a number of different ways. So we have group therapy, so we have group classes where everyone's fundamentally doing the same thing. We have a lot of individual one-to-ones whereby we're developing our individual specific exercise prescription in order to achieve someone's clinical treatment goals. We utilize recreational therapy, which essentially is games, fun and games, uh, to sort of break the monotony somewhat. And they also utilize uh, hydrotherapy as another treatment modality. But again, what we're doing is delivering exercise rehabilitation in our uh, hydrotherapy environment and utilizing the advantages of being in that, uh, that environment to, to, help, to help enhance the, uh, the exercise rehabilitation which we are delivering. So, that's, so hopefully that sort of gives you an overview of what the RI does and, and sort of the, the roles uh, which they're expected mm -hmm. to do within the interdisciplinary team of within defence rehabilitation. Cool, that's, that's awesome JP, I mean that gives us a real big overview of it. Um, obviously you've got your main uh, clinic there at Headley Court and I think there's a couple of smaller sub clinics that are dotted around the country. Um, obviously you talked about your time in clinic like Headley Court and like how you'd set up training for the guys now. Obviously a big part of the military is deployment as well, like in operations across the, the globe. When you were deployed, how did your, your role change within like what you were doing as a rehab instructor? Um, so within defence rehab, so, sorry, give you a bit more context. The way defence rehab structure did you have the Defence Medical Rehabilitation Centre is the centre hub. Yeah. And initially that was Headley Court, so obviously it's now moved to Stanmore Hall. Stanford Hall, sorry. Uh, around that, we then have what's called regional rehabilitation units. And then past regional rehabilitation units, we then have what's called primary care rehabilitation facilities. And the only way these uh, centres differ is in the capabilities which they can offer in terms of clinical rehabilitation and so on. Now, with it, in addition to that, we also have something known as the Deployed Medical Rehabilitation Team. And the Deployed Medical Rehabilitation Team is basically individuals who are taken from the PCRS and RRUs and sometimes from DMRC who are pulled together to form this team which then deploys operationally. So for example within Afghanistan uh, where I was uh, on Oper Operation Herrick 10 in 2009 is the DMRT is attached to the field hospital which is in theatre to, the to the joint med group and the role of the deployed medical rehabilitation team on the ground is to fundamentally act as a for force multiplier Mm -hmm. So if someone sustains a musculoskeletal injury or some form of min minor polytrauma, which doesn't necessarily mean that they have to get aeromedic back to the UK, you then rehabilitate them on the ground and then you then send them back out to do, obviously do the job that's required to do. When you're deployed operationally as part of the DMRT, you actually have two different sort of orientations. You have R1, 
uh, which is essentially you're, you're based at a hub, so for example, Camp Bastion, or R2 is when you deploy out on the ground and you actually go to some of the larger locations, some of the forward operating bases or FOBs. So it's far easier to get one or two people to these FOBs and to bounce around than to bring back maybe four or five guys from each FOB. And the idea being is that you can then go there and you can provide uh, advice, education, and some form of preventative exercise or rehabilitation uh, intervention, which can keep the guys on the ground to do obviously what they need to do, uh, especially when you're, uh, and that's vital, especially at that time. Mm -hmm. We had some major operations going down. So we had uh, Operation Panchai Palang, uh, Panther's Claw, and that was a huge kinetic operation. And we needed as many guys and girls on the ground as possible in order to achieve critical mass to do what needed to be done. So it makes far more sense then to have this DMRT bouncing about, delivering exercise rehab, providing the, the most basic form of rehabilitation you possibly can just to keep the guys in the fight. Uh, so that, that gets, sort of gives you an overview of how the, the role of the ERI within the, the Defend Deploy Med Rehab team works when deployed. Cool. I mean, if you were uh, going around like as an R2 and you were at all these different uh, FOBs, how long were you in each one? Would it be like a day or two and then you'd move on to the next one? Was there a more prolonged period of time you'd be in that uh, forward operating base? Or? Uh, it varied. The guys who did the R2 posts, it would tend to, they might be a couple of days, might be seven days, might be two weeks. So just because they weren't allowed to do ground moves, it would be a halo move. So, but then they would be on the ground for maybe six or seven weeks, bouncing between fobs. Then they would come back to Bastion, sort of reconsolidate for a week, then go back out on the ground. And okay. then it would rotate. So the physios would rotate, the RIs would rotate, uh, and then it would just carry on from there. Cool. I mean, you talked a little bit there about um, going out and seeing the guys directly or getting them back to somewhere like Bastion to uh, rehab them and then get them back out into the field. Obviously, being in the army or being in the military, it's, it's a tough physical job to be in, you know, and it also has its, its, its dangers with it as well. But because of the operational loads and stuff we're seeing in guys, it's like, what are, the, what are the common injuries the guys are typically suffering while they're out on operation? And, you know, what are the mechanisms you see around that? It, be, it varies. So I wouldn't, I wouldn't necessarily just go down the, the lens of looking what happens operationally. You need to consider what happens prior to operations. Yep. So if you consider, obviously, the guys go through a pre-deployment training package, which can be anything up to 69 months, and it does vary. But you've got to consider then, so obviously, and to be perfectly honest, the guys are training consistently. That's how the military works. It's always in a consistent cycle of training, either training for an operation or training in preparation for a potential operation. So, uh, and then you consider to look at the infantry. So the infantry are fundamentally, they do, they are the sharp end of the spear. They are the individuals who have to cause, and, cause with and engage the enemy in order to bring about his defeat. And everyone else within the army is there to support the infantry. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's very important to consider. And everyone, in my opinion, should be a soldier first. Uh, a, Soldier first, tradesman second, something that's always drilled into me. Indeed, the Marines are actually real good at applying that. And I think a lot of people maybe within the Army forget that at times. But I think maybe the experiences of Afghanistan especially sort of reinforced that the importance of it. But anyhow, I digress. Coming back on, you've got to then consider what are the physiological and psychological demands of ground coast combat placed upon the, the infantrymen. So they involve sustained heavy load carriage. Uh, and that load carriage can range anything from potentially maybe 27 kilograms basic combat load, potentially up to 54, 72 kilograms. In fact, I remember recording a platoon sergeant in the Welsh Guards 
when he was back in Bassem with me and before we sent him out on the ground, just see how much kit he was carrying. And he was carrying just shy of 69 kilos. He only weighed 66 kilos. Okay. So that sort of puts it into context. And bearing in mind that includes, so body armor, helmet, weapon system, ammunition, Bergen, Daysack, ECM, so electronic countermeasures, ammunition, bombs, bullets, it, the list goes on and on and on. Uh, and it doesn't matter how much technology advances, the soldier always carries as much bombs and bullets as he physically can. So you consider, obviously, you have that sustained load carriage. You have periods of patrolling at slow speed, so you're patrolling along, maybe going to ground, taking a knee, getting back up, patrolling over, trying to avoid vulnerable points, so you're not necessarily taking the most obvious route. So you, instead of going through a path, you might say to climb into a ditch, walk through that ditch, which is full of... Um, not very nice water, for want of a better word, climb back out the ditch, climb over a wall. So yeah. you're doing that sustained. In the same time then, you might come under contact. So rounds start coming down range. You go to ground. You then have to obviously respond to that fire. You may sustain casualties. You then, you're moving rapidly. You're, you're crawling, you're getting up, you're running forward, you're going to ground. You're doing that repeatedly. You're jumping over objects, jumping over walls. You might have a casualty. You have to get that casualty in your back and you have to extract them out. Yep, you might have to, you might have come on the point there might be uh, unarmed combat. So you might be clearing through a compound, for example, and the, the enemy's right in front of you and you have to fight them hand to hand. That did and does happen. People forget that. It's not about bombs coming down from the sky. So think about all the physiological demands that's putting upon you as an individual. Then let's wear this up a while. Let's do that day in, day out for six months. Let's deprive you of sleep. What's the pride? Let's give you poor nutrition at the same time. Let's put you in an extreme environmental uh, conditions, heat up to 54 degrees, 100% humidity, and let's see how you get on. Straight away, you can sort of see there by the picture of Bill, albeit briefly, that that, I would argue to this day, is some of the most extreme environmental conditions and some of the most extreme stressors, cognitive stressors that the human can possibly bear. And the problem you've got is it's within that context, you don't have a choice. You have to deal with it. Yeah. If you don't deal with it, you're going to be the reliability to yourself, the liability to others. So that's the task demand. Yeah, and it's extreme. So we have to work back from that. We have to do a reverse engineering. So everyone who's going to deploy knows that that's going to be the demands which they might have to, uh, or the physiological and psychological demands which they might experience through going close combat. So then units try to build individuals up to deal with those stressors through a process of systematic stress inoculation. Out and they might do a lot of tabbing, so tactical advance to battle, doing a lot of progressive load carriage. However, what you might find is then that increases your susceptibility to chronic overuse, uh, low limb overuse injuries. So common examples which, you, which we saw within defense rehab is uh, anterior knee pain, mm -hmm. and that's sort of a sticking, plas uh, sticking plaster terminology for potentially up to 13 different types of conditions, uh, medial tibial stress syndrome, so shin, common on the shin splints, tendinopathies, so maybe Achilles tendinopathies, patella tendinopathies, mechanical lower back pain from the loads which we're carrying, uh, shoulder impingements, again, carrying these heavy loads, so putting in a kyphotic posture, you, you tend to see quite a lot of them. So within defense rehab, a lot of the people we would see, especially at uh, an RRU level or at Headley Court, they would be presenting with these sort of chronic overuse injuries. In addition, obviously, you can have acute trauma just through training and running about. Obviously, from the example of sensory sprains, strains, fractures, they're, they're quite common. Uh, and then battle injuries. So we just need to consider sort of the bat some of the injuries which we saw as a result of conflict in both Afghanistan and Iraq, Northern Ireland as well. Uh, so polytrauma from blasts. So polytrauma can just be extensive lacerations and soft tissue damage, amputations, 
below knee, above knee, single leg, bilateral, triple, upper limb amputees. Uh, gunshot wounds, and obviously the associated polytrauma, which goes with that. Uh, mild traumatic brain injuries, traumatic brain injuries, again, result of concussion. Uh, extreme concussion is a blast or series of blasts. Mm -hmm. uh, burns, which, again, that's something which we experience quite a lot. So straight away, I've sort of went off on a bit of a tangent there, but I think it's important to go to set the scene first to consider yeah. what is what are the guys expected, guys and girls now, sorry, expected to deal with and then work back from that. And it, so when you consider what the, those task demands are, then you consider how they're trained or how the training to, to condition them for them is conducted. It is going to result in an increased susceptibility to these sort of injuries. And obviously the battle injuries are fundamentally the result of being on the ground and obviously doing what needs to be done. Nice, mate. I mean, like, yeah. The, the overview there of like the, the, the uh, challenges faced by the modern warfighter is just overwhelming, especially in places like Afghanistan and Iraq. You've got the environmental conditions, uh, multiple stressors going on there as well, like say sleep deprivation, and added load carriage. Um, I know that physical testing has changed for the, the British Army, especially for individuals within the, the ground close combat roles. And I know you... Was it uh, last year, a couple of years ago, you put out your uh, article in the UKSA's professional journal on like, how to train the modern warfighter, like, and how to help prepare them for these stressors. So, can you talk a little bit about that and like why that's come about? Yeah. So, actually, the the, the article which I uh, had published in the UKSA journal was uh, sort of a follow-on to a piece which I did and initially came back from Afghanistan. Mm -hmm. So, my last tour was uh, Operation Eric Ten, summer two thousand and nine, and a, at the time, obviously, I bore witness to the end result of what was happening. Uh, obviously, well, sorry, I bore witness to obviously the casualties which were sustaining, but also bore witness to the fact that the, all the guys and girls weren't prepared adequately, adequately for the demands which they were being put upon. So if you think about it, modern military ops, they put pretty unique and intense physiological and psychological demands upon the soldier. There's no way possible about that. But then what sort of Obviously, I was doing my undergraduate degree at the time, and I was straight away, you've got this question there, because surely there's a better way we can do this. And I was actually sponsored by HQ uh, Land at the time to put these thoughts into, uh, into words, to write a paper on my experiences and observations. And I was supported to do so. And basically, I'd done an initial paper, uh, an internal paper, Is the British Army Fit to Fight in Afghanistan? Optimizing Physical Performance for uh, Dismounted Coast Combat. And the fundamental premise of my the review was that the British Army is not fit to fight in Afghanistan. It was not prepared. Uh, and the evidence which was published at that point, so 2010, demonstrated that quite well. And the anecdotal evidence was, was very, very strong. Mm -hmm. And when I came back, I then got posted to the Defence Medical Rehabilitation Centre, Headley Court. And what happened was, to put this in context, I arrived there in September 2009 in complex trauma. So these are guys that sustained amputations, gunshot and so on from both Afghan and Iraq was around 17 patients in September. By the end of October, and bear in mind these guys have to, they've been to Sally Oaks and they get sent on head of court, complex trauma numbered 70 to 80 patients at any one time. And all of them had some form of life-changing injury. Yeah. And if I remember standing there in the gym looking in, and obviously these guys are in bits, and knowing full well that because of the condition and the way we'd sent them out to the theatre to do what they need to do, that I would argue strongly, and I'd argue strongly to this day, that they were not physically prepared for the physiological demands of ground coast combat in Afghanistan. As a result, some of them didn't come home as a result of that. 
And I would say that many of those who were injured came home as a result of they weren't prepared for it. Now, I'm not saying there's a direct correlation, there's a direct link. That's, that's impossible to prove. However, everyone's on the ground and they're physically and cognitively fatigued and they miss a combat indicator. The next minute, boom, quite goes up. You've got pink mist everywhere because your mate's been blown apart. You're in bits because you're missing your legs or because you were fatigued and tired because you couldn't cope with the stressor. That's wrong. That, and like, to me, that's something that drives me to this day for some of the work I'm currently doing. So as a result, then obviously that, that sort of passion and drive went into this paper and it was well received internally. And indeed, I got a joint med commander commendation for it, which is really fitting. But I also then, it was the instigator for some other work which I started to do internally within the army. And I'd done this document and sort of left it. And obviously I left the army and then obviously I was doing the role I'd do. And someone, I can't remember what it was, but someone in the UKSA said, oh, you should write about your experiences and publish it. And not the journal, because it's something that's novel. And so then I produced the, the tactical athlete optimizing physical preparedness for the demands of combat. And it was very similar to that original document, which I produced back in 2010. However, it was, I'd be able, been able to expand upon it and, and develop the concept a little bit further. Now, obviously that was a work strand, which I had done. But at the same time, some of my other colleagues and peers within the services, they were sort of doing similar pieces of work, uh, which over a period of years has sort of developed into the Army Physical Training System, which is whereby the Army now have developed a physical training system based upon the block periodization model and giving guidance as to what sort of training should be done at what sort of time in order to optimize performance. They've also changed the uh, physical employment standards uh, and that change has been a result of both operational experiences and the fact that now uh, females can apply to, to go into ground close combat roles. So these new physical employment standards have been designed to be gender fair, uh, so gender free, age free and to take into consideration the actual demands of ground close combat. Because before, all physical training in the army was very much endurance space, but I didn't really consider developing the soldier holistically. Like very little emphasis was given to developing the fundamental movement skills. Very little emphasis was given to development of strength, for example. And we know quite well, looking at the evidence now, that if we can improve one's low limb strength, so their maximum force production capability and the rate of force development, it can lead to improvements in load carriage performance. Therefore, you can argue very strongly and quite succinctly that we should be doing some form of lower limb strength training intervention in order to enhance load march performance because load marching, carrying load is a fundamental role of the soldier on the ground. However, before we were never doing that, they were just doing high volume circuit training, which yeah. is good for enhancing work capacity. And, and that's got its place at the right time, the right context. However, if we're trying to optimize each and every individual to do what needs to be done, well, we need to think we need to think bigger picture. We need to look at the evidence, look at the science, and take that science and apply it in our context, which is important. So that includes the development of fundamentalist movement skills, the, de the development of strength fitness components, maximal strength, rate of force development, uh, work capacity, then th thinking about developing the engine, so aerobic and aerobic capacity, developing speed, developing agility, but put it into a context which is specific to the military. Uh, and this, the, those, both those pieces of work were very much geared towards that. To, they were just obviously based upon my experiences, anecdotal experiences, observations, and the evidence, and they were just pulled together. And I think here we are, that was 10 years ago, that first piece of work was done or published. And now we obviously think things are in motion and things are changing. It's took a long time. Uh, the military is a slow moving machine, but we're there and, there and things are progressing and things are developing. Uh, 
and quite rightly so, because if we were still doing what now, what we were doing 10 years ago, mm-hmm. we have not learned our lessons. And yep. that is the biggest failing possible. But luckily, the army at a tactical level is brilliant at learning and adapting quickly. But maybe the military is not so good, maybe at a strategic level, but that's a, that's a whole different discussion. But tactical, we are. And the army has certainly learned those lessons. And the PT Corps obviously went away. And obviously, they're now instigating these various interventions to help optimize the soldier. Uh, and I think one of the big changes, but maybe which still needs to occur, is that before testing was just a tick box exercise within the military. So that like, yeah, you get to this test and yeah, you're fit to go, you, you pass your PFA or whatever it may be. Mm-hmm. I think now the big driver should be to install performance mindset, to strive to consider to continually be better, to continue to improve yourself. Not everyone is going to be a tier one SF operator. Not everyone's going to be in the SAS or the parachute regiment or whatever it may be. However, everyone can always optimize and improve and be better. And if that can be adopted culturally within the army, both in terms of how we develop ourselves physiologically, psychologically, and all the facets that go with it, including the health and well-being of the soldier, well, then we can prepare that soldier optimally for the demands of ground close combat. We can potentially also improve their resilience through a process of stress inoculation, whereby they can cope with the demands which are placed upon them. And then, obviously, when they come back, they're in a better position to deal with any subsequent issues as a result. Because let's be honest, war, warfare is not a nice a nice thing to experience it's probably the ultimate high but what goes up must come down if people have been on that high and then they come back to the mundane of society or people moaning about what 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 they see is what or minor things well that potentially may impact upon them so again if we can make them more resilient to that through developing a holistic approach to uh, physical preparedness well, that's a good place to be. Uh, so, yeah, I've sort of went off on a bit of mag- massive tangent there. I'm going to bring myself back down there. Uh, no, 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 that, was, sort of- that was awesome, JP. I mean, it's great to get your insight into it and like, just see how much things have changed over the 10-year period like of being through into Afghanistan and Iraq and that. And I know recently I saw like, how much the kits changed from when operations first started to where the military equipment is now. And obviously that impact is obviously having on the training output of guys as well. So you're not having that... Uh, number of guys going down with just overuse injuries and stuff because yeah. they don't have that yeah. base level strength i mean for the guys when you were working as a rehab instructor and the guy would pitch up uh with an injury so let's say like a lower back or like a patella pain or something like that how would you guys work as like you know as a unit to get them back to fitness and then like integrate them back into their unit like what was the comms back and forth between units it sort of, it sort of varies so what's happened is if so if it was a PCRF, so primary care rehab facility, it would be an ERI and a physio normal uh, unit. And that individual would be releasing the unit for maybe an hour a day. And they would go and work with the physio and the ERI to obviously achieve the rehab objectives. And what would happen is we would go through what's called a MIAC, so multi-injury assessment clinic first, whereby their injury or condition would be assessed and an appropriate course of treatment uh, decided upon collectively between the physio and the ERI. And obviously that would then be applied. Now, it may be the case that the individual went to that MIAC and the, individ- the injury or the condition was deemed to be uh, beyond their capabilities. Therefore, they would then get, uh, they would then be sort of guided in the direction of an RRU and they would go to the RRU for a three-week submission, uh, submission, uh, admission, whereby they would have three weeks of intensive exercise rehabilitation. And again, if the RRU couldn't deal with the respective condition uh, or injury, the individual could then be staffed up to DMRC, where again, there's greater capabilities and greater uh, clinical treatment capabilities, sorry. Now, 
what that means is you've got this sort of three tiers of approach. Now, let's assume an individual gets post, uh, sent to DMRC because they've got quite a complex injury. Headley Court will dictate what their treatment objectives are. And obviously, they'll then go through a three-week admission at Headley Court. And if the objectives are achieved, brilliant. They'll then reassess those objectives and set new treatment goals and step towards them. Now, eventually, those goals might dictate that they're going to go to, the, to an RRU. And the RRU will decide the next set of treatment goals to get them a higher function. Or it may be that it's then dictated that from Headley Court, they're going to go to PCRF. They'll go to the PCRF. And the PCRF, at that point, may then decide, OK, you're non-symptomatic. You, you've got pain-free range of motion. Uh, you've got no pain, no swelling, nothing like that. What we now need to do then is to provide conditioning. So more, so instead of therapeutic exercise rehabilitation, now we're looking towards more mainstream strength conditioning to prepare you to then go back into normal training within the unit. Now, it's not about preparing them back to the level they were at previously. It's about preparing them at that point into a higher level. So when they go back into the unit or back into the mainstream PT, that they can cope with those uh, stressors more than adequately. They're not going to break back down. No different to how uh, you would approach rehabilitation of a football or an injured rugby player or whatever. You have criteria. If you achieve those criteria, brilliant. But you want to take them to a standard above, uh, above and beyond that. So you then have confidence that they can cope with the training. And the Army, oh, sorry, the, within defence rehabilitation, it's the exact same. So it's all about setting initially clinical treatment goals. Once those goals are achieved and the individual's got a level of function, then just setting new goals. But those goals are always going to be very much uh, individually based on what the requirements are of the individual. And then a set point will then start to switch emphasis to what the requirement of their role is. But again, it's a very fluid uh, system, very dynamic system. Uh, but it works well. It works very, very well. Uh, and again, obviously having been so used to defence rehab and the system we've got and how we approach and how we work as a true interdisciplinary team, and then obviously being out now and seeing how rehabilitation is applied in some professional contexts, I'm still a bit surprised by that lack of joined up thinking. People are very siloed out with, not every environment, but I feel in a lot of sporting contexts, you do have that silo. Physio just does what they does. S&C does what they do and they don't meet up in the middle. Whereas defence rehab, we're working together from the very, very beginning. And everyone's opinions are equally valid and it's about achieving a consensus. And if a consensus can't be achieved in the correct treatment goal, well, we always have a consultant who has the final say in what way we go. That's interesting. I mean, having been in sport myself, I, I can fully agree with you. Being in those programs that are really well integrated and well managed versus people, as you say, who are more in a siloed approach and then the, the whole program just gets mismanaged with regards to yeah. training volume. You see the athlete burnout and stuff. So it's a nice overview there, JP. Um, I want to skip on a little bit of your career. So obviously, you were working as a rehab instructor and then you were saying you made the move over and you were doing some work with power sport is with the um, charity help for heroes that and some of the projects around that you talk to us about how that opportunity came up to you and like the nature of the work you were involved in while you were there yeah so obviously i had been at headley court i'd been an ri uh, posted at headley court for around three years at that point and i was due to get posted but i think because of the and uh, I would say most of the staff at that time, but what we went through, staff and patients alike, it was unique. The number of patients who we were seeing coming through at that time, the severity of injuries which they've seen, no one had ever seen before, or not seen since maybe the Falklands of Korea. And a lot of these patients were surviving injuries which previously, maybe 10 or 20 years before, would have killed them. But then you, 
you get to know these guys and girls really well. Uh, I'll, I'll be totally honest with you, it's very different to be objective in that environment. So you and orientate to do what needs to be done to get them where they need to go and it becomes personal. And I think for those of us who'd especially deployed in Afghanistan and Iraq and then came back and got posted straight to Headley Corps, it was even more uh, focused. Mm -hmm. We knew exactly why what we, we were doing and why we had to do it. And obviously we were in the national eye at that time as well. Everyone knew what Headley Court was and everyone knew what Help for Heroes were as a charity. But I always remember this a story about a young uh, infantryman who was in the Mercians. I won't give you his name, but he came up to me and said, Ah, oh, staff, what's going to happen once I finish here at Headley Court? So, what do you mean? He goes, This is brilliant. I'm getting the best rehab, I've got the best prosthetics, we've got everything's cared for. But when the wee Darman get discharged, what? Well, I'm going to go back to Mossside, Manchester, and the NHS is going to give me the same. I remember walking them. I said, like, oh, Mate, I, I don't know. I, I don't know what's going to happen. And at that point, we didn't have anything really to support the guys. But at the same time, uh, the charity, Help for Heroes, the MOD and some of the other service charities, British Legion, started to actually get their act together. And I, I don't mean that disparagingly, they, they started to obviously do some collective thinking and decided, well, let's make a transitional program which can assist the guys from rehab back into obviously whatever they're going to do with their lives. Uh, but also it then creates a uh, sort of a safety net whereby veterans can always fall back into it, like what we used to have previously. And they call this defence recovery. Uh, and the aims of defence recovery fundamentally is to enable our wounded injured sick to have meaningful and fulfilled and active lives. And that was a concept. And the concept was going to be that we're going to build a series of these recovery centres around the UK, uh, and the guys would then go through rehab, finish rehab, go through a series of recovery activities, then obviously go back, crack on the rest of their lives. But any time they could always come back to the recovery centers and go through. And what happened was uh, a century got headhunted, which was really humbling. Uh, I was approached by the head of the charity, a guy called Bryn Parry, who I knew from some cycling activities, which uh, we had done through Headley Court and Help for Heroes. And Century said, oh, do you want to come and work for Help for Heroes, doing what you're doing at the moment? Uh, but we'll give you a bit of a carrot and that you can design a gym from scratch uh, to obviously fulfill the requirements needed. You know, the conversation, okay, that's fine, but what's the budget? Don't worry about budget. Just do it <laughs> the best fill so you could. So obviously it's nice and see that's like unheard of. Yeah. Uh, anyhow, for me, it was just a confluence of factors. I've been in the army 12 years at that point. Obviously things were so personal in regards to Dover of Exercise Rehab. Some of the guys we were working with at, were and still are some of my best friends. And obviously when you've seen someone from point of injury, get onto their stubbies, get onto the prosthetics, to start to building up, to start doing some pretty cool events, which we'll sort of allude to in a second, it, it, you want to stay with them for the long yeah. haul. Uh, indeed, the athletes who I still work with are guys who I was working with 10 years ago. Anyhow, uh, Help for Heroes approached me and all of those confluence factors, I was like, yeah, I'm going to leave the army. So I uh, hit the button, uh, left the army in April 2012, uh, designed the Phoenix Centre uh, gym, uh, which was a humbling experience, not having any constraints whatsoever and building a facility based off our lessons learned at Headley Court and obviously my own training philosophies to develop quite a unique facility. So we built that. Uh, at the same year, I then trained uh, and led our eight-man team or with only seven legs between them on the 2000 and the sorry 3051 mile race across America. Uh, four hand cycles, four road cycles, and a big massive support crew of 24 people. And we rode across America in a time of seven days, seven hours, and 38 minutes. Wow. So that was in June 2012. Uh, we came back from that, and obviously, then we had the Paralympics in London in 2012. And we started to develop quite a close relationship with British Cycling at that point and some of the other uh, NGBs in para sport. And that was the result of something known as the Battleback Program, the Adaptive Sport Program. 
Uh, so then it was obviously rolled into that program. The guys were starting to get discharged. So we were trying to use sport for some of them to facilitate their recovery. Uh, we then had the Invictus Games in 2014. So I was the, uh, the lead coach for the Cyclone team for the Norgro Invictus Games in 2014, which was brilliant. I think we achieved an 80% success rate in terms of medals uh, because we went there with a very simple approach and that was to win. It wasn't about the participation for that one. Yeah, so we'd done that. Uh, obviously, at the same time, to have an SNC support to these guys who are developing the loads of different pathways and loads of different sports, cycling, powerlifting, paratriathlon, sailing, rowing, the list goes on and on. Uh, during that time, I was also involved in a program which was a privilege to be involved with called Operation Surf, whereby from 2011 through to 2016, I, I used to take a group of 10 or 12 guys and girls over to uh, California, to Central Coast to engage in this program called Operation Surf. And honestly, in terms of a rehab activities, surfing is up there. The environment, the people we had coming along to teach them how to surf, uh, and just the activity of surfing was, was second to none. And for those of you who surf, for example, one of the instructors one year was uh, Kelly Slater came along. And we also had, oh, I totally forgot his name now. Oh, there's another quite famous surfer. <laughs> Uh, who came along as well. So it was, it was a big programme, and we'd done that programme together with a American Miss. Obviously, we, we fought together in Afghanistan and Iraq, and the concept was that we rehabbed together. So that, that was a privilege uh, to be involved in, in that programme. Uh, and then again, just to sort of close things off in that chapter, I, we went back and done the race across America again in 2017, even though I'd said I'd never do it again after the first time. And this time we took another eight-man team uh, one of whom was a triple amputee and a hand cyclist, which is wow. pretty much unheard of. And we'd done the RAM this time in six days, 12 hours, 36 minutes. Uh, so again, that was pretty awesome achievement by everyone involved. Uh, and that sort of, that was, yeah, that's just, it's, when I look back now upon reflection, it's been a privilege to be able to be part of some of those programs and to be given the, the latitude to deliver them. And more importantly, to see the guys and girls, especially those who are worth the head of court, to grow to see how they've changed and what, see how they've overcome adversity and how they've demonstrated true post-traumatic growth potential. They're not wallowing in self-pity. They're just striving to achieve the next objective, the next goal, to be part of a team. Uh, so, yes, that, that chat to my wife has been it's something I look back on now and I think, yeah, that was, that was a privilege to do. That sounds awesome, mate. I mean, just to have those big goals and those massive projects for those guys, to, to race across America in six days and 12 hours with Yeah, the second is, time. Yeah, that is, just, that is just incredible, mate. Absolutely incredible. So now you've moved into academia as well now in the third phase. So where whereabouts you at and what were you doing? Yeah, so obviously I finished the RAM in 2017 and that was sort of like a closure for me. I was like, yeah. I can't keep doing this. I've been and working in rehab and recovery now at a, at a really high tempo. It's probably seen the number of projects I was. I, I was burnt out. But I still wanted to work with the guys and girls who I was working with. So, but I'd always wanted to go into academia. And by that time, also, our MAC, we had just finished it at St. Mary's. And I decided, just watch you on a whim. I'm going to go into academia. I know it would be a lecturer. So I came back from America and I started looking. And there was a number of lecturing jobs coming up in S&C. And uh, I'd, bear in mind, I've never done a civilian job interview in my life. Uh, and I put, tipped my hat in for a 0.5 role uh, at Buckinghamshire University to be a lecturer in strength and conditioning. Thought 0.5 role would be really good. It's a bit of a commute from where I live, granted, but uh, it'll be a nice sort of stepping stone in. 
went along, obviously I had the interview, first interview I'd ever had in my life, uh, and obviously must have, must have sold myself quite well, uh, because the head of school phoned me back, offered me the position, but then they couldn't match me for parity of pay, but they said, oh, don't worry about that, you will employ as a senior lecturer instead. So, okay, brilliant, a bit naive to this. Obviously, didn't appreciate that, would be definitely jumping into the deep end. Yeah. Uh, but hey, uh, challenge is good, enjoy challenge. So yeah, I took up that position in 2017. Uh, it, was a, it was a validated, a brand new program which we validated at that point, BSE Honors and Strength Conditioning. So obviously I had to go away and obviously deliver that program and we've done so over the past three years. However, recently uh, the UKSCA and SimSpa just released the new Graduate Strength Conditioning Coach Professional Standard, mm -hmm. which gives undergraduate degrees something to align to. So the existing program, I hadn't been involved in the design process for it. And it, overall, it was really good, but there were some things that were lacking. So because we had this graduate strength conditioning coach standard, we revalidated program early uh, this over the past year. And we've now got this new validated BSc on the strength conditioning program, which I feel is actually really, it's a real good product, real good offering. Uh, and it sort of helps develop both the knowledge and skills which SNC practitioner needs, but being able to also plug in the development of experiential learning, uh, including some, some real good work placement opportunities, including uh, potential internships in America, uh, a number of uh, Division One uh, NCAA universities in the States. So again, that's quite a good offering to have. So obviously I've been doing all that stuff, brilliant. Uh, but obviously I still always had a foot in the military, still, so a lot of my peer group now in the PT Corps have moved into positions where they've become commissioned and there are obviously certain individuals in charge of certain uh, training, research and so on. And it just so happens that one of my uh, ex-colleagues in one of these positions, and we were chewing the fact about what's happening for the education provision, for the higher education provision in the PT Corps. Because in the PT Corps, especially as in our ERI, it's expected that you will do some form of degree level qualification. And for a long time, with my undergraduate degree, I'd done it via that pathway. So I'd done my BSc under strength conditioning at University of Central Lancashire, so UCLan up in Preston. Okay. But uh, a long time ERI used to go to St Mary's and do the sports rehab degree. So obviously I've, I've had that experience, but at the same time, the uh, a different university was delivering this educational provision for the RAPTC. And we sort of just got in a discussion saying, well, how's that working out? Could it be improved? Obviously, Box is just up the road from the PT school. Would you be interested if we looked at developing a bespoke program for you? To cut a long story short, over the past 18 months, uh, we've developed a unique BSc Honours in Strength and Conditioning for the Armed Forces, mm -hmm. uh, which is a closed program of study and it's only open to serving Royal Army Physical Training Corps instructors, Royal Air Force Physical Training instructors, uh, or Royal Marine, Royal Marine uh, Navy uh, physical trainers. So basically, you've got to be serving you've got to be, have completed or be serving in one of these respective branches uh, and you can then sign up for this program. And the program is actually a two-year course because we've APL the first year based off the previous, so using prior ex, uh, experiential learning. So the training which the guys and girls have all done previously, that covers the first year. They then come in and they do a two years worth of study in a blended part-time format. A, very similar to our existing undergraduate SNC degree However, what differs is at level six, we have developed a bespoke 30 credit module in strength and conditioning with tactical populations, which to the best of my knowledge, no one else in the UK is currently touching at all. And uh -huh. uh, obviously in America, there's some stuff done with the tactical athlete with the NSCA and the TASAC scheme, uh, but not in the UK. So I think we've developed something quite unique. Uh, like I said, and it's obviously pitched at a very unique demographic of individuals who are still serving. 
but the uptake's been real good for that program so again that's been a, a nice project to be involved with and there's going to be some potential uh, research uh, avenues which we're going to be looking at as well in regards to looking at the efficacy of the new armed physical training system and uh, how the, the new physical employment standards correlate to certain uh, physiological measures so some real good stuff potential there uh, and that includes some collaboration with uh, the defense science and technology laboratory so dstl uh, so again it's just some real good joined up thinking and that's very much being driven by the fact that bucks as a, as a small university, we have an active military engagement strategy and we already do bespoke courses for the military. So all we've done is just plug into that and obviously develop a dialogue and develop something which is quite cool. Uh, and in addition to that, just to keep myself busy, uh, I'm just currently working towards my PhD by the published work group uh, at Cardiff Met University or through Cardiff Met University, sorry, and looking at the optimization of hand cycling performance. So that feeds back into all the stuff I've been doing uh, both at Headley Court and then with Help for Heroes over the past 10 years. Yeah. I mean, that, that sounds awesome, mate, like the work you guys done at uh, Bucks uh, University for like the, the program development for the guys within the military. And you're seeing that module there uh, for the SNC course, looking at uh, SNC for tactical populations. Is that, when you're, is that separate to the uh, military-only degree or is that for like the, the other general students can tap into that one as well? That it, at the moment that's just for the military uh, okay. and I think so as we chatted about this before but I think context is everything and I think obviously the concept of the tactical athletes gain a lot of popularity in America and Australia and now the yeah. UK however how they deliver PT in their military is very different to how we do it in the UK obviously we've had the PT course been in existence since 1860 yeah. so we've been doing some sort of physical training for almost 160 years so we must be doing something right and they haven't the PT core does many good things uh, and it's not until you look back where you've came from that you realize that however it can always be improved but what they have and I'm going to use PT core example is everyone in the PT core has served in a different uh, cap badge they've had experience as a soldier on the ground in one way shape or form they understand the context and I think context is key because only when you understand the context of ground close combat and the roles involved mm -hmm. to support that can you then truly understand the, what needs to be done how you need to train for that and develop that and i think uh, without being too disparaging i would i would find that i'd be very surprised if a if an snc via the normal pathway was able to come in to an snc role and deliver physical training to either the army the raf or the royal navy or the royal marines to the same level because they just don't have that context that cultural understanding and i appreciate not everyone will pre like that however in the army and military respect is earned it's not gained and that's gained through going through those experiences. And I would say that's probably even been more reinforced as a result of our experiences in Afghanistan and Iraq, especially. Uh, but obviously, I'm sorry, that's a, that's a personal opinion. Yeah. Uh, obviously, we've, we've got this module here and it's been developed. Uh, and yeah, for the, at the moment, it will just be delivered uh, in-house to the serving PTIs. Cool. I mean, it's been... Awesome hearing your story, uh, JP. Obviously, soldier, rehabilitation instructor, lead SNC coach, charity, uh, and now senior lecturer in academia. Anyone listening to this, you know, if they want to get in touch with you or find out a bit more about your research, what's, what's the best platforms they can reach you on, mate? Yeah, so I'm a bit of a social media prior, to be honest. <laughs> uh, but what I, I do have a, a LinkedIn profile, so John Paul Nevin. Uh, at LinkedIn or ResearchGate uh, in regards to, say, my uh, research and stuff which I'm doing there. 
Cool. I'll make sure I'll, I'll link those into our show notes, isn't it? So folk can find you quickly. Um, obviously, I started up this podcast. I wanted to chat to uh, people who are a lot more intelligent than myself to try and pick up the knowledge and that. So one of the things I'm always interested in is what people are doing for their own CPD and stuff. So final question for you, mate, is can you give us a, a book, an app, or a website recommendation you found really useful or you're currently looking at? I, one book I'd recommend, and I only finished reading it a couple of weeks ago, and I, I thought it was an outstanding uh, seminal piece of work, is by uh, Professor Ian Jeffries. So I've seen a lot of people with an SNC role should know Ian, uh, yep. as he's pretty much the king within our field. But Ian has just had a book uh, published titled Effective Coaching and Strength Conditioning. And I've always enjoyed reading Ian's work. May it be, obviously, the stuff he does with the uh, uh, game speed, or the ramp warm-up and various things. But what he's done here is he's, brought, he's basically brought all of this stuff together into sort of what this treatise, uh, overview of, of his beliefs. And what's fascinating about it is, and I agree with him, is that within strength conditioning, obviously from my background, I learned how to coach first. On the job, I learned vocationally how to manage people, how to manage groups, how to coach. Then I developed my knowledge and skills to give me the expertise which I've got now. However, a lot of undergraduate SNCs in the moment, and I see this at Bucks, is they've got the knowledge, they've got the skills, but they don't have the experience. They've not got that applied nature. They struggle with how to, to coach. Yep. And they might be really, really good sports scientists. They're good at uh, looking at data, uh, gathering data, monitoring, gathering data, quantifying that data, and looking at all the... So but that's more sports science. That's more the physiologist, the biomech, and so on. What they're really struggling at doing is taking that information, taking meaningful drawing meaningful conclusions from the information in front of them, then applying that in the coaching setting. Mm -hmm. And what Ian's essentially proposing in this text is that we need to, the pendulum needs to come back to the middle. We need to be able to obviously have the, the science, but we need to have the art of coaching. And so many people are lacking that. They've just not had the, the chance yet to develop those experiences or they're, or they're just not been given the opportunities or they've not knocked on the right doors or asked the right questions. And the way Ian's pulled this text together is just brilliant because it just summarizes that in far more eloquent language than I'm using here. But it just reiterates the point that we are coaches and coaches first, and we need to be able to do that. And if we cannot coach, it doesn't matter how much knowledge or how much what we've read or what skills we've got from academia, it's about as much use as a chocolate fire guard if we cannot <laughs> use it in the meaningful setting. And honestly, it's the last text that which I read, it got me thinking as much, was uh, Franz Bosch's uh, Strength Training and Coordination Integrative Approach. Yeah. And even still, I read that book now, and I don't know whether it is the guy's a pure genius or he's just talking out his arse. But, but it was a thought-provoking book, and yeah. many people who have read that text would agree with me. But again, there's many good texts out there in the s and world, but I always find that they're very similar. But this one that Ian's published is very different. It's thought-provoking and it challenges the status quo or what's developing is the status quo. Uh, and I would recommend it as a read to any aspiring uh, s and coach or anyone who's currently practicing within the field. That was awesome. I'll definitely make sure I check that out and I'll probably put a link to that in our show notes as well. JP, thank you so much for taking the time, mate, to speak to me today. It's been an absolute privilege, uh, absolute wealth of information being shared there. Anyone listening is going to get better just tuning into this. So thank you so much. Cheers, bud. My pleasure. No problem, bud. I'll speak to you soon. Okay, guys. Thank you so much for listening in today. If you enjoyed the content here, please check out our website at monarchhumanperformance.com. 
and sign up for our newsletter to stay up to date with future podcast episodes, articles, and upcoming content, including training programs and live and online workshops.